Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one titled, The First American Road Trip. And this is a great story about a true American adventure in the days before paved roads and gas stations. When I was a boy, my dad really enjoyed taking us on car trips. I grew up literally in three states, California, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. And we ended up seeing just about everything in between, visiting friends, uncles, or attractions. Dad was fond of telling the story about driving from Sacramento to Albany, New York in 1937 to take a new job with GE at their turbine plant in Schenectady, where he eventually met Mom. He said he would drive for a while on paved roads, and then the paved road would just disappear, turning into a dirt road or trail. If it had rained, sometimes there was no trail. He would just head east. Route 66 was pretty much the trail you followed back then if you wanted to get from west to east. Sometimes you crossed creeks, hoping your tires wouldn't get mired in the soft bottom. Road maps weren't all that reliable. Dad was lucky in that he got to see all of America before all those thousands of miles of roads connected us and brought us screaming into a concrete future. In 1903, America was full of optimism. After all, it was the beginning of a new century. The first Rose Bowl game was played in Pasadena, California. The first movie theater had opened in Los Angeles. Ragtime music was the rage, and Scott Joplin's The Entertainer had become a hit that would keep him in the money for the remainder of his career. Also in 1903, the first cars were seen by many chugging down dirt roads and putting through towns, upsetting horse-drawn carriages, drawing stares and some curses, and getting strange looks. Most folks laughed them off, calling them a passing fad. After all, they needed gasoline, the wheels weren't reliable, and there were no roads. In 1903, there was only 150 miles of paved roads in America, and you could get 15 or 20 years out of a horse, maybe 10 years out of that steel rust-bucket horseless carriage with no cover on it. And they were dangerous to horses and pedestrians. In fact, just a few years before, a man in New York City was run down and killed by an electric-powered street cab. But Horatio Nelson Jackson was one of the few that believed that cars were the future. Born in Toronto, Canada, to American parents, Jackson graduated from the University of Vermont in 1893, became a physician, and practiced in Brattleboro and Burlington, Vermont. He had married one of the wealthiest heiresses in Vermont, allowing him to retire early from his medical practice. He was by all means set for life with a beautiful home, a stable of thoroughbreds, and an island in the middle of Lake Champlain. But there was something lacking in his life, adventure. They traveled to Mexico and then Alaska, looking at potential mining investments, and the next stop was San Francisco. In May of 1903, Jackson was a guest at the University Club, a private social club located in the exclusive Knob Hill area, where he got involved in a discussion with some guests about the future of automobiles. He and his wife had been taking driving lessons in one of these newfangled contraptions the past few days of his visit, and he was definitely sold on the future of automobiles in America. He said that one day automobiles would take place of horses, and people would be going to work in cars and even driving across the country. And that's when one of his acquaintances bet him $50. He couldn't do it. He accepted the bet. Jackson later wrote, The majority opinion expressed was that, save for short distances, the automobile was an unreliable novelty. Everyone poo-pooed the idea of even attempting such a journey. 
The first American automobiles had been built just 10 years earlier, and most people in America had never even seen one. Those who had seen them complained about the noise and the dust they caused and their tendency to spook horses. Jackson's home state of Vermont was so terrified of the new whiz-bangs that they passed a law requiring every auto to be preceded down the street with a person waving a red flag. Some people even resorted to dangling steel cable across the roads to stop those devil wagons. There were other efforts made to cross the country by car before Jackson's bet, but they didn't end well. The first effort took place in 1899 and ended rather inauspiciously when the trip had to be called off after one armed bicyclist challenged the car to a race from New York City to Syracuse, gave the car a 10 day head start, and then passed it easily. <laughs> In 1901, a much-publicized attempt by car manufacturer Alexander Winton to go from San Francisco to New York came to a frustrating halt in a sand dune in Nevada. Winton had seen a series of failures, but he was learning from each of them, and each time Winton's cars were becoming sturdier and faster. Years before, a Vermont doctor challenged a bar full of skeptics to the bet that generated America's first road trip, Winton a Cleveland bicycle manufacturer, threw down the gauntlet to friends who doubted he could build the fastest car in the world. He had spent 12 years building two-wheeled contraptions, but he was convinced that the same aerodynamic principles that moved a bicycle could apply to a motorized vehicle with four wheels, too. Many people, including some of his closest companions, told him he was crazy. Winton responded by proving he was right. Not that his point was easily proven. Winton's early cars were utter failures, barely unable to reach 10 miles per hour and subject to frequent breakdowns. This didn't discourage one of America's earliest automobile manufacturers, however, who used his smooth business acumen to pass off his product on countless Midwest residents. Many were upset when they realized the bullet cars they were supposed to be buying often put them in more danger than an actual bullet. One Cleveland resident, enraged at his Winton's failure to function, towed the car through the streets of the city with a team of mules bearing a sign reading, this is the only way you can drive a Winton. When news of this stunt reached Winton, the car maker was livid. The next time the disgruntled customer took to the streets with his mule team and his sign, he was met by Winton himself driving a wagon carrying a donkey and featuring a banner stating, a jackass is the only animal unable to drive a Winton. The man reportedly never protested Winton's autos again. Then, Winton's luck began to turn. Through a variety of technical improvements, the two-cylinder contraptions produced by the Winton Motor Carriage Company became safer, more reliable, and, much to Winton's personal glee, much, much faster. In 1897, Winton himself took the wheel of one of his cars, driving out of the Cleveland city limits and vowing not to stop until he reached New York. The 800-mile trip took Winton 10 days, almost 79 hours of which were actually spent behind the wheel. But manufacturer and auto both made it to the city in one piece. Yet Winton was dismayed that little attention was paid to a journey that had been largely designed as a publicity stunt for his company. The temperamental Scotsman wasn't about to make the same mistake twice. Two years later, he repeated the trip from Cleveland to New York. This time, however, he brought with him a passenger, a nationally known newspaper reporter, by the time he reached New York, every paper in the country was covering Alexander Winton and his incredible modern cars. This stunt worked. 
Before long, Winton was selling more cars than any manufacturer in the brief history of the automobile industry. Enough success that Winton decided he didn't need any new employees working at his company. So when a young man brimming with ideas for increasing the efficiency of automobile production came to Winton for a job, Winton dismissed him without even granting him an interview. For the rest of his life, Henry Ford would never forgive Winton for this slight, stating near the end of his days that it was Winton's refusal to hire him that spurred Ford to start his own car company, a brand name America recognizes today far more than the label of Winton. At the dawn of the 20th century, however, the name of Winton was paramount among American car enthusiasts. Around this time, Winton began racing his own cars, another way in which he could attract publicity to his company. In 1901, he ran against his new rival, Henry Ford, still reeling from Winton's rejection and bordering on bankruptcy with his own fledgling car manufacturing company. Yet Ford's car defeated Winton's on that summer day in Michigan, shining the spotlight on Ford's automobiles for the first time. And the rest, as they say, is history. Bitterly disappointed at losing to Ford, Winton challenged another young auto manufacturer to a race with the hope of reasserting the national prominence of his cars. This time, it was Ransom Olds, founder of the Oldsmobile Company, who accepted Winton's dare. The two men met in 1902 on the sands of Daytona Beach, Florida, each man looking to prove the supremacy of his vehicle. Nobody remembers who won this race, but the location of their in-car combat remains sacred in the minds of NASCAR racing aficionados today. Every February, America's stock car season kicks off with a race on the site of Winton's Clash with Olds, a national event now called the Daytona 500. The popularity of the Winton was already starting to decline when Jackson made his cross-country road trip in 1903. Buoyed by the media frenzy surrounding Jackson's feet, Winton remained successful in the car business for two more decades. Eventually, though, he shut down the Winton Motor Carriage Company, focusing on building heavy-duty gasoline and diesel marine engines until the end of his life. And now it was time for the Winton to make its comeback. Four days after making his bet, Horatio Nelson Jackson, having exchanged goodbyes and good locks with his wife Bertha as she left on a train for Vermont, purchased a Winton two-seat touring car number 1684 for $3,000, equipped with a 20-horsepower two-cylinder engine, and named it Vermont. He then hired a 22-year-old bicycle mechanic whose name was Seawall Crocker after a one-candidate job search on the streets of San Francisco. With few maps, no experience, and only 150 miles of paved highways in the entire country. The doctor set out to conquer the open road. The car was transported by ferry from San Francisco to Oakland and points eastward. But only 15 miles into the journey, the car blew a tire. Jackson and Crocker replaced it with the only spare they had. In fact, the only right-sized spare tire they'd been able to find in all of San Francisco. Before long, they were on the road again. The first day's misadventures had proven something to Jackson. Crossing the country in a car wouldn't be as easy as he had thought. Horatio had packed coats, rubber protective suits, sleeping bags, blankets, canteens, a water bag, an axe, a shovel, a telescope, tools, spare parts, a mess kit, block and tackle, cans for extra gasoline and oil, a Kodak camera, a rifle, a shotgun, and pistols. 
heeding the failed attempt by automobile pioneer Alexander Winton to cross the deserts of Nevada and Utah, Jackson decided to take a more northerly route, a route through the Sacramento Valley and along the Oregon Trail also allowed them to avoid the higher passes in the Rocky Mountains. The second night of their journey, they replaced the side lanterns, having discovered on the first night that they were too dim with a large spotlight mounted on the front of the Vermont. They stopped early in Sacramento to, to accomplish this. The duo was assisted in Sacramento by bicyclists who offered them road maps. Jackson was unable to buy a new tire, but purchased some used inner tubes. Going northwards out of Sacramento, the noise of the car covered the fact that the duo's cooking gear was falling off. They were also given a 108-mile misdirection by a woman so that she could send them to the spot where her family could see an automobile. The rough trek towards Oregon required them to haul the car across deep streams with the block and tackle. Somewhere along this route, Jackson lost a pair of his glasses. Stuff continued to be lost, including another pair of Jackson's glasses. They were also forced to pay a $4 toll by a landowner in order to cross his property on a bad, rocky mountain road, as Jackson described it. When their tires blew out, they were required to wind rope around the wheels. Jackson did manage to find a telegraph office and wired back to San Francisco for replacement tires to be transported to them along the journey. Keep in mind that there were no paved roads, no gas stations, no road signs, and in many areas, no reliable mapping. In his book, Jackson described the mostly unmarked paths he was forced to bounce over as composed of tuts, bumps, and thank you marms. He and Crocker constantly working on the car, pulling it out of mud holes, teetering on the edge of cliffs, or simply getting lost. After one harrowing drive after a stretch of narrow, bumpy road in the Cascade Range, the two men noticed that their cooking utensils, contained in a mess kit, had bumped out. Discovering their loss, Jackson and Crocker determined that living off the countryside or starving was less to be feared than a return trip, wrote Jackson's friend Ralph Nadine Hill in his book, The Mad Doctor's Drive. Reaching Alturas, California, Jackson and Crocker stopped to wait for the tires. They offered locals rides in the car in exchange for a Wild West show in Alturas. Now 11 days into the trip, he and Crocker were trapped at a stagecoach inn in Alturas, California, showing the Winton to slack-jawed bystanders and waiting for a shipment of new tires to arrive. For five days, the men waited. Jackson, though battered, is hardly beaten. Just as soon as we get good tires, we'll make a record run, he wrote in a letter to his wife. I feel more confident that I can make New York. When the tires failed to materialize, however, Crocker found a way to repair them, going all the way to Lakeview, Oregon on day 12. Then came another delay after the engine blew, three more days wasted, and even Jackson began to wonder how he could ever make it across the continent. Worst of all, an enterprising Lakeview merchant charged him $3 for a gallon of gasoline, ten times the average price at the time. At this point in the journey, one can only imagine how far away New York must have seemed to them. On June 6th, the car broke down, and they had to be towed to a nearby ranch by a cowboy on horseback. Crocker made repairs, but a fuel leak caused them to lose all their available gasoline, and Jackson rented a bicycle for Crocker to travel 25 miles to Burns, Oregon for fuel. After suffering a flat tire on the bicycle, he returned with four gallons of fuel, which Jackson complained cost him nearly $20. 
and they returned to Burns to fill up. On June 9th, outside of Vail, Oregon, the Vermont ran out of oil. Jackson walked back to the last town to get oil, only to discover eventually that they had been stopped only a short distance outside of Vail. The next day, they arrived in Ontario, Oregon, where supplies waited for them. Somewhere near Caldwell, Idaho, Jackson and Crocker obtained a dog, a pit bull named Bud. As it turns out, Jackson had wanted a dog companion since Sacramento. Newspapers at the time gave a variety of stories how Bud was acquired, including that he was stolen. In a letter to his wife, Nelson said a man sold him the dog for $15. It turned out that the dusty alkali flats the travelers encountered would bother Bud's eyes so much that Jackson eventually fitted him with a pair of goggles. At one point, Bud drank bad water and became ill but survived. Bud, wrote Jackson, was the one member of our trio who used no profanity on the entire trip. Then they got stuck in sand and had to be rescued by a team of horses. The second time it happened, there were no horses handy, and they had to create 100-foot stretches of sagebrush, repeating the process until they were able to get on firmer ground. At this point, the trio became celebrities. The press came out at every stop to take their picture and conduct interviews. At Mountain Home, Idaho, citizens warned them that the Oregon Trail was not good further east, so Jackson and Crocker veered off their original course along the southern edge of the Sawtooth Mountains. At Haley, Idaho, Crocker wired the Winton Company for more parts. On June 16th, somewhere in Idaho, Jackson's coat, containing most of the traveler's money, fell off and was not found. At their next stop, Jackson had to wire his wife to send them money to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Between June 20 and 21st, all three of them got lost in Wyoming and went without food for 36 hours before finding a sheep herder who gave them a meal of roast lamb and boiled corn. Before reaching Cheyenne, however, the car's wheel bearings gave out and Crocker had to talk a farmer into letting them have the wheel bearings of his mowing machine. Let me pause for just a second and ask everybody out there, does this sound like any family trips you've ever been on? The travelers eventually reached Omaha, Nebraska on July 12th. From there on, they were able to use a few paved roads, and their trip was much easier. The only mishap happened just east of Buffalo, New York, when the Vermont ran into a hidden obstacle in the road, and Jackson, Crocker, and Bud were thrown from the car. They arrived in New York City on July 26, 1903, 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes after commencing their journey in San Francisco in the first automobile to successfully transit the North American continent. Their trip expended over 800 miles of gasoline and used up 4,200 miles. After leaving New York City, Jackson joined his wife and drove home to Vermont. About 15 miles from his home, his car once again broke down. His two brothers, each driving his own automobile, came to help him get going again. Shortly after returning to the road, both of the brothers' vehicles broke down, and Jackson towed them both home with the Vermont. Upon reaching the threshold of Jackson's garage, the Vermont's drive chain snapped. It, it was one of the few original parts never replaced during the entire journey. Jackson eventually settled in Burlington, Vermont, with his wife Bertha and Bud the dog, who made it okay. He was active in several businesses, including a granite manufacturing company owned by his brother. A longtime member of the Vermont National Guard when World War I broke out, Jackson was considered too old, but he contacted former President Theodore Roosevelt, whom he had met at some point in Burlington. 
through whose influence Jackson was placed on active duty as a captain in the medical corps. While serving with the 79th Infantry Division as a major, he was wounded at the Battle of Montfaucon during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. Jackson's awards included the Distinguished Service Cross, Purple Heart, the Croix de Guerre, and France's Legion of Honor. Following the war, he became a colonel in the Officer Reserve Corps and was one of the founders of the American Legion. He twice ran for governor of Vermont and owned a newspaper, a bank, and a radio station, WCAX, which is now WVMT. Ironically, at one point, he was ticketed for exceeding the six-mile-per-hour speed limit in Burlington. Jackson died in Burlington on January 14, 1955, and was buried in Burlington's Lakeview Cemetery. And by the way, the doctor never did collect that $50 bet. What he gave us was priceless, as his cross-country road trip awakened the reality of connecting an entire country by roads and leading all of us to an incredible 20th century that would witness the mass manufacture of cars and the change of a way of life for American families and businesses that no one in 1903, even Horatio Nelson Jackson, could have foreseen. The next time you visit the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., be sure to see the special display there featuring the original Winton and lifelike characters of the two men and a dog who made the first successful Trans-American road trip. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. If you're an iTunes listener, please take a moment to give us a review. We love to hear new ideas for stories at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. You'll also see on our website at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com, in the top right, you'll see reviews. And that's where you go in. It'll give the instruction as to how to give us a review. Much needed. Much appreciated. Thank you. Special thanks to articles and books written by Peter Fimwright, Jason Pomerantz, Dayton Duncan, author of the book Horatio's Drive, and Peter Kesling, who duplicated the trip 100 years later for all their contributions. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.